This podcast was produced by ORFM Dunedin with support from New Zealand On the Air. Hello and welcome to Heritage Matters, a programme brought to you by the Southern Heritage Trust and sponsored by Ryman Healthcare. This week, Bill Southworth looks at the career of Sir Keith Park. Anne Barraclough covers the 125th anniversary of St Hilda's and Richard Stedman takes a nostalgic walk down Cumberland Street. The RAF fighter pilots who shot down hundreds of German planes in the skies above England in 1940 were led by former Dunedin schoolboy Keith Park. He was the crucial figure in the Battle of Britain. It was said of him that if he made the wrong decisions... He was the only man who could have lost the war in a day or even an afternoon. Bill Southworth prepared this profile. Between July and October 1940, the skies above London and southern England were crisscrossed by vapour trails left by Spitfire and Hurricane fighters struggling to bring down huge waves of German bombers that Hitler hoped would knock Britain out of the war. People on the ground watched in amazement at the dogfights taking place above their heads, dogfights which often led to German Heinkel bombers bursting into flame and crashing to earth. What those on the ground were watching was an epic defence being waged by the 11th Fighter Group, tasked with defending London and southern England. 135 New Zealanders flew fighters in the Battle of Britain, and at the head of the 11th Fighter Group was former Dunedin schoolboy Keith Park. The Germans would later nickname him the Defender of London because he had staked a claim as one of the greatest commanders in history of aerial combat and yet his achievements went almost entirely unacknowledged for decades after the war and even today his name is not as well known as it should be. Aria fighter ace Douglas Bader said of him The awesome responsibility for this country's survival rested squarely on Keith Park's shoulders. British military history of this century has been enriched with the names of great fighting men from New Zealand, of all ranks and in every one of our services. Keith Park's name is carved into history alongside those of his peers. Park was born in 1892 in the North Island town of Thames, the son of geologist James Park, who later became a professor at the University of Otago. Keith went to Otago Boys High School, where he was keen on horse riding and guns, but was otherwise an undistinguished young man. He served in the cadets, and later he joined the army as a territorial soldier before going off to sea as a purser on passenger steamships. In World War I, he served at Gallipoli, and in 1915 he was given a battlefield commission as a second lieutenant. During the Battle of the Somme, he was wounded and was certified as being unfit for service but when he recovered from his wounds, he was able to join the newly formed Royal Flying Corps. In the Flying Corps, Park distinguished himself as a flying ace and emerged from the war as a major with two military crosses, a distinguished flying cross, and the French Croix de Guerre. Between the wars, he rose steadily in the ranks, and by the time of the Second World War, he was an air vice marshal in command of the 11th Fighter Group. His overall commander was Air Chief Marshal Sir Hugh Dowding. Dowding had implemented the world's first integrated air defence system, 
The combination of radar and human observers on the ground allowed the RAF to rapidly and accurately respond to incoming German aircraft. With the support of Dowding, Park designed his tactics around mobile and agile defence. Using small formations, he wanted his fighters to intercept German bombers, ideally before they reached their targets. Park's tactics would prove correct, and his forces consistently prevented the Germans from either reaching their targets or being able to hit them as effectively as they could. The small RF formations also gave the Luftwaffe fewer targets to shoot at. It also meant there would always be RAF fighters in the air who could cover planes on the ground. The Germans swept in in formations that sometimes had as many as 400 bombers. However, the RAF fighters caused devastating losses. On one day alone, the Germans were reported to have lost 175 planes. The subsequent Chief of Staff, Air Chief Marshal Sir Stephen Dalton, said that Park was... A man without whom the history of the Battle of Britain could have been disastrously different. He was a man who never failed at any task he was given. During the four months the battle raged, Park mostly conducted operations in an underground bunker at RAF Uxbridge. Day after day, Park made strategically brilliant choices, organising and deploying his forces with clinical precision. He soon garnered a reputation as a remarkable tactician, as well as a popular hands-on leader, flying around in his personalised hurricane, regularly visiting airfields and keeping spirits high. At the height of the Battle of Britain, Prime Minister Winston Churchill visited Park's 11 fighter group bunker at Uxbridge and watched the Women's Air Corps staff pushing discs of RAF and German formations around on a huge table. Afterwards, Churchill told Major General Hastings Ismay, Don't speak to me. I have never been so moved. After a few minutes' silence, he said, Never in the history of mankind has so much been owed by so many to so few. Days later, in a speech to the House of Commons on the 20th of August, he made that phrase immortal. The gratitude of every home in our island, in our empire, and indeed throughout the world except in the abodes of the guilty, goes out to the British airmen who, undaunted by odds, unwearied in their constant challenge and mortal danger, are turning the tide of the world war by their prowess and by their devotion. Never in the field of human conflict was so much owed by so many to so few. The Battle of Britain was over by November 1940. Despite the great victories, the Royal Air Force proved itself to be a den of backbiting and jealousy. Air Vice Marshal Trafford Lee Mallory resented his 12th group being given a lesser role defending the airfields. There were also those who thought they would have done a better job. They disliked Dowding's irascibility and considered Park to be vain. Neither Park nor Dowding had much time for internal politics and fell easy prey to their critics, who eventually succeeded and getting them abruptly replaced. Their successors started using tactics the pair had rejected. This new approach failed dismally, and historians now argue that Dowding's strategy and Park's tactics had been correct. It is also reasonable to speculate that Park may have been replaced because as a New Zealander he was seen as an outsider by the British establishment. 
There was a precedent. Polish pilots had been little regarded by the heads of the RAF until the success of their squadrons made such prejudices unsustainable. Not all in the RAF viewed Park in a bad light. Richard Saul, the commander of the 13th Fighter Group, wrote to Park on learning of his pending departure, commenting on... The magnificent achievements of your group in the last six months. They have borne the brunt of the war and undoubtedly saved England. Despite being given a knighthood for his services, Park remained indignant of his and Dowding's treatment for the rest of his life. But the war was not over for Park, and he would go on to fight in another significant aerial battle, the Battle of Malta. Malta had become strategically vital to both the Allies and Axis powers after the front in North Africa was opened up in 1940. The important island was soon besieged by Axis forces and became the most bombed place on the planet. Park immediately turned the tide of the aerial battle in favour of the Allies and within six days the Axis forces had abandoned their daylight raids. He finished his RAF service as Allied Air Commander of Southeast Asia. Sir Keith Park retired to New Zealand, settling in Auckland, where he became a city councillor and chairman of the Auckland International Airport Committee, where he had a decisive influence in the establishment of Mangere International Airport. He died in 1975 at the age of 82. After his death, he received recognition of a sort in the UK, where on the Battle of Britain Day in 2010, a statue of him was erected in Waterloo Place, central London. In April 2019, another statue was put up in Thames, where he'd been born. Ron Mark, the Minister of Defence at the time, said at the unveiling, Simply put, Sir Keith was an outstanding man, leader and Kiwi. No other New Zealand-born military figure has had a greater impact on history than Park, for none have ever had such a significant role in determining the course of such a major battle. A battle that, had it been lost, would have allowed Hitler's land forces to invade Great Britain, thereby changing the history of the world. Subsequent Chief of the Royal Air Force, Lord Tedder, best summed up Park's achievements in a quote, If any one man won the Battle of Britain... He did. I do not believe it is realised how much that one man, with his leadership, his calm judgement and his skill, did to save not only this country, but the world. Surely a great New Zealander whose achievements are far too little known. This is Bill Southworth reporting. This year, St Hilda's celebrates its 125th anniversary, and Barraclough takes a look at the early history of this long-established Dunedin school. On a visit to England, we went to Whitby, where we visited the Captain Cook Museum. Captain Cook lived at Whitby as a young man, where he was apprenticed to a Quaker-owned shipping company before joining the Royal Navy. A very impressive ruin sits on a prominent headland overlooking Whitby and the sea. This is Whitby Abbey, a one-time Benedictine abbey of nuns and monks where St Hilda was foundress and abbess from 657 until she died in 680. She was an amazing charismatic woman from a noble family, highly intelligent, with strong leadership qualities and the ability to impress church leaders and be given great responsibility. 
People came from far and wide for her advice, and Whitby Monastery became famous and hosted the Synod of Whitby in 664. It was Bishop Neville, Dunedin's first Anglican bishop, who established St Hilda's. Bishop Selwyn encouraged him to apply for the Wellington bishopric. This did not appeal to him, but he and his wife visited New Zealand in 1870, travelling to Dunedin, a newly established diocese, to attend the Synod, after which he was appointed first Bishop of Dunedin. He was committed to education and was also responsible for the establishment of Selwyn College for theological students. In 1895, Bishop Neville wrote to the community of the sisters, inviting them to come to Dunedin to set up a school for girls. The order sent a sister May from Australia to investigate. She found Dunedin charming and ripe for them. In December 1895, the sisters were established in Dunedin, sisters Etheline and Geraldine being the first to arrive. Staying at Bishop's Grove while they looked for premises, they found a suitable rental house of 20 rooms at 177 Leith Street called The Grange, which had been the home of a previous mayor in the 60s. Sister Etheline was in charge of boarders and assistant to Sister Geraldine. With the help of two lady volunteers, Mrs Emma Allen and Hannah Dawson, and Selwyn College students, they got the building ready for opening in February 1896. Many parishioners and local churches donated furniture and equipment for the school and chapel. The name, Bishop Neville's Choice, was decided on and the school was advertised. The first prospectus stated... St Hilda's Collegiate School for Girls, Leith Street, Dunedin, is conducted by the Sisters of the Church, assisted by an efficient staff. The aim is to provide a sound education suitable for the daughters of gentlemen, and at the same time, to provide a thoroughly happy home where every effort will be made not only to cultivate the minds of the pupils, but also to train and develop their whole character. The sisters have had wide experience in educational work, both in England and the colonies, and have been acknowledged as highly successful. The whole school is under the immediate supervision of the sisters, who frequently give instruction to the various classes, and so are brought into direct contact with every child under their charge. The health and comfort of resident pupils is made in a special care. Religious instruction is given daily by one of the clergy or a sister. The curriculum includes arithmetic, mathematics, English composition and literature, history, geography, including both physical and political, science, French, Latin, class singing, freehand drawing, needlework and calisthenics. Extras included harmony and theory, singing, music, violin, German, drawing, painting and dancing. Pupils were prepared for university matriculation and homework was not required under Form 3, today's Year 9. A week after opening, the Christian Outlook, the Presbyterian paper, congratulated the bishop on securing an institution where, in addition to the usual branches of education, young ladies will be trained in the special doctrines of the Anglican Church. As time goes on, we grow less and less in love with a system of education, the atmosphere of which is carefully exhausted of all definite religious teaching. The school is the church in embryo. Columba and John McGlashan Colleges were to be established in 1915 and 1918, respectively. 
St Hilda's started with 11 pupils, including some boys from kindergarten age up, boarders and day pupils. The sisters were anxious as to how the girls, many of whom had not attended school nor had proper teaching before, would perform in their exams relative to similar-aged children in England. They felt very short of staff and financially hard up. They need not have worried. St Hilda's had got off to a good start. Soon the Leith Street house was too small, with 61 pupils, 16 being boarders. Bishop Neville came to the rescue with a new rental house, Mahinga, on the Cobden Street site. The rent for the St Hilda's premises had steadily grown. Bishop Neville offered to sell the building to the sisters for £4,500. They only had £120. One of them said... Some windfall may blow in our direction, as it has in others. At all events, we save, pray and hope. A cottage was rented in Heriot Row for the overflow. The girls fundraised for the war effort, especially the Belgian refugees. Many old girls went overseas as nurses. In 1917, a substantial brick-built house next door in the Heriot Row was purchased with a gift of £250 from Bishop Neville towards it. During the Spanish flu epidemic, it served as a temporary hospital as the schools were closed. Parents tended to withdraw their girls from school at 14 or send them overseas or to other schools for finishing the sisters successfully applied for the school to be accepted as a centre for the Cambridge exam. In 1912, four seniors and six juniors sat the Cambridge exams. Dressmaking and a new sports mistress were introduced. Girls raised money for a font for the new Anglican Cathedral, consecrated in 1919. Bishop Neville retired at the end of that year. Vacations were dwindling, and the order in 1930 announced it had reluctantly decided to withdraw the sisters from New Zealand. This caused great dismay. Two laymen, Colonel J. Cowie Nichols and Mr. George Ritchie, loaned the school £2,000 each, and a board of management was set up. The remaining three sisters left Dunedin on the 15th of April 1931 with many fond farewells. The Order of Sisters of the Church had founded and run the school for 35 years. Sister Etheline, Bishop Neville's niece by marriage, had been on the staff the whole time and maintained her interest in the school throughout her life. The board took up the task of running the school, which it has continued to do to this day, St Hilda's enjoying an excellent reputation and producing many distinguished ex-pupils. Miss Blackmore from London was the first lay principal, and many distinguished women have succeeded her. I am proud to say that one of my daughters is an alumna of St Hilda's and that she benefited enormously from her years as a pupil there. I am Anne Barraclough, reporting for Heritage Matters. I am grateful for the voice of Judy Southwood and Judy Mason's Adventure of Faith, the story of St Hilda's Collegiate School, 1896 to 1996. Despite the difficulties of the COVID pandemic, planning for the new Dunedin Hospital progressed apace during 2020, and by the end of the year, preparation of the location had begun. In November, a walk along Cumberland Street 
reminded Richard Stedman of the way things were. During a November morning, I walked the two blocks on Cumberland Street between Hanover Street and Stewart Street. Work was beginning on demolition to make way for the new hospital, which was to occupy a large part of the two blocks between Hanover and Stewart Streets. It will straddle St Andrew Street, but already there's talk of resizing and budgeting. As I walked, I watched the initial stages of the project and dwelt on yesteryear. Some can see progress, but I recognised what Dunedin City has lost in the recent times in terms of industry and employment. I mentally dialed back the years to the Whitcalls printing complex. It began life in the early 1950s as called Somerville Wilkie, who developed the site to replace their premises in Crawford Street, which had been destroyed by fire in 1952. Cools had deep roots in the city, tracing its origins to 1872. In 1971, they merged with Whitcomb and Tombs, whose printing works neighboured the fire station in Castle Street, and became Whitcools in 1973. From across the road, I can visualise the factory interior, a vast cavern occupied by hundreds of skilled artisans in the myriad disciplines that drove the printing industry. It was by far the largest printing work south of Christchurch, and although nearby Cadbury had its own print shop, there were wrappers and packaging enough to keep some of Whitcall's machines busy. They manufactured stationery products, school exercise books, diaries, railway working timetables, books of every description, flexible packaging and cartons. In fact, there was nothing they could not produce. I had worked there briefly in the mid-1970s. Whitcalls was taken over by corporate Raider Briley, which tore the heart from the business, as they did so many others, and in the mid-1980s it was sold again. The Allied Press commercial printing operation was merged into the new company and Whitcalls was reduced to a chain of bookshops. By the 1990s the site was no longer a printing factory and in 1995 it was converted into a supermarket operated under the Big Fresh banner with its animated vegetable characters and a centrally located bakery operating under the gaze of customers. Big Fresh introduced a new approach to supermarket shopping creating an almost carnival atmosphere. Parking was installed inside the building on two levels and I enjoyed revisiting my one-time workplace. However... After only eight years, the supermarket closed and the site was repurposed as the new headquarters for work and income, now known as the Ministry of Social Development. On turning 65, I called in again. Araki Polytech moved in during 2011 and Wilson Parking leased a number of the car parks. What had once been the Whitcalls paper store had long since become Mitre 10 and the first shop for the fledgling warehouse set up in an adjoining building with little more than a cash register and a few trestles. At least that's the way it seemed. There were more changes when the warehouse relocated the octagon and a lighting shop moved in. Later, Mitre 10 moved on and warehouse stationery took its place. In 2013, the Whitcalls buildings changed hands for $10 million and have now been demolished. At St Andrew Street... The traffic lights insist I wait opposite the Cadbury complex. In the 1990s, the then owner of Cadbury had consolidated its New Zealand production in Dunedin, citing the climate as ideal for chocolate making, and in order to provide space for a distribution centre, purchased two adjacent properties lining St Andrew Street. 
One was the former McLeod Soap Factory and the other J&W Faulkner's Iron Works. Both were major employers in the city and their loss was compounded by the closure of Whitcalls and later Cadbury's. The distribution centre has gone. All that remains is a perimeter wall. I wait and reflect. During the 1950s, I had visited McLeod Soap Factory with my neighbour who was the works engineer. And believe it or not, in 84, I called up Faulkner's in a futile attempt to encourage their participation in a special supplement to promote Festival Week. The manager declined, and I was not surprised, for I seemed to have entered a time warp and found myself in the 1920s, where I was regaled of glories past. Faulkner's was established in 1887 as makers of ornamental iron, wire work, and wire netting. They had moved to the St Andrew Street, Castle Street corner in the 1920s and in a strange irony, if you'll excuse the pun, they specialised in making hospital beds, furniture and apparatus as well as cafeteria equipment. I most likely lay in one of their beds when I underwent a tonsillectomy at Dunedin Hospital in 1956, an experience I recall vividly. Faulkners were also sheet metal workers as well as electroplaters and specialists in stainless steel fabricating. They manufactured playground equipment, iron and brass bedsteads, wrought iron gates, fire escapes and railings, but after being taken over by Charland and Company, the factory was closed in 1987, its centennial year. The McLeod Brothers, established in 1869, was for 100 years one of the leading soap and candle manufacturers in the country, with Laundrine Soap as its flagship brand. Virtually the only soap manufacturer in New Zealand other than multinationals Unilever and Colgate-Palmolive, McLeod's had an international reputation. Apart from its staple laundry, the factory specialised in contract manufacturing for Avon, Shultons, Shiseido, Meadows Taylor and Cussons. Much of their production was exported to Australia and many older residents will recall the unwelcome aroma generated when they were rendering tallow. Charland and Company carried out a successful takeover in 1969 before it successfully became a subsidiary of Carter Holt Harvey in 1973. The plant was sold to Stevens KMS Corporation in April 1988 and on sold to Colgate-Palmolive in April of 1989 and closed down in August that year. Was it a coincidence that both these companies had been taken over by Charlands and ultimately closed? In any event, the loss of Faulkner's, McLeod's and then Whitgall's printing were major losses. Each had generated a broad swathe of commercial manufacturing activity in Dunedin. I heed the call of the crossing signal and walk, contemplating my visit to the Cadbury Printing Works in the 1970s and the thousands of permanent jobs that have been lost in the area. In a bitter twist, Mondelez International received a golden handshake and had no problem quitting its properties when it closed Cadbury Dunedin. Cadbury World had attracted 120,000 visitors a year. At Stewart Street, all was quiet. Nobody was doing the morning coffee run. Richard Steadman for Heritage Matters. This programme, which will be repeated on Sunday at 7pm, is kindly sponsored by Ryman Healthcare and brought to you by the Southern Heritage Trust. Ryman Healthcare prides itself on offering some of the most resident-friendly terms in New Zealand. 
Ryman Healthcare's Francis Hodgkins and Yvette Williams Retirement Villages in Dunedin offer the very best of retirement living and care. For more information and to discuss your retirement living options, please phone Kate on 455-7936. Ryman Healthcare, supporting Southern Heritage Trust and the Heritage Matters Programme. This podcast was produced by ORFM Dunedin with support from New Zealand On the Air.